Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. Here, you'll find the smartest insights on women, leadership, and the best ways to power through the stuff that can hold us back and that can make tackling our dreams more challenging than it should be. Every week, I'm joined by a dynamic woman whose story holds important insights. Insights around not only her journey, but things like how she's dealt with self-doubt, how she's overcome setback, how she's managed career and life pivots, and how she channels and uses these would-be obstacles to her advantage and how you can too. Stick around. I think you'll love what you hear. My guest today on the podcast is Jen LaGreca. Jen is a very successful independent author who uses the power of story to portray and dramatize thought-provoking ideas and ideals, especially related to freedom and independence. Her latest book, her fourth, is entitled Just the Truth. It cast fictionalized media maven and heroine, Laura Tanninger, in a fight for truth that will seem eerily timely to many of you. Jen wrote the book over a five-year period, but its themes are particularly relevant now as the 2020 election approaches and as questions mount about both the integrity of journalism and also the election process. This is not a partisan book, and this will not be a partisan conversation, but this is a conversation that will challenge your thinking no matter which side of the political aisle that you may identify with. We'll talk with Jen about the book, but we'll also talk to her about her story and how she went from pharmaceutical chemist, I kid you not, to fiction author, and how rejection and diversity of experience informs her work. Jen, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks, Laura. I'm so happy to be here. I am delighted to have you. All right. So tell us about Just the Truth. I want to hear about this book. Okay, this is my latest novel, my fourth novel, and it's a political murder mystery and thriller. And it's a book that covers truth in journalism and how important truth in journalism is and how we must never lose it because all of our foundational freedoms depend on it, on journalism speaking truth to power and exposing political corruption especially, and thereby protecting us. So it's about Laura Tanninger, who's a young woman. She's idealistic. She's a journalist. She heads a a company called Tanninger News. It's part of her family's corporations. And she learned from her grandfather, who was a great role model for her and who started Tanninger News, that his motto was, find the truth wherever it hides. Mm -hmm. So she always stuck by that. And so she suspects wrongdoing. She's suspicious of election fraud in an upcoming uh, bid for re-election of President Ken Martin. These people are all fictional. It's nonpartisan. And so she has a source within the Martin administration, and he's giving her information. And just when he has vital information for her, he's murdered 
and everyone is saying it's a random street crime, but she doesn't think so. So she does her investigative journalism and she's trying to uncover if there's election fraud pointing right inside a scheme within the Martin administration. She faces the full force of a retaliation of a very powerful administration, of their media friends, and of you know, partisan groups that are trying to help the president. And the deep, what we call now the deep state, I, I outlined this novel several years ago, we didn't even have the word fake news, so I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that it's all coming to fruition, unfortunately, in our own society. But they yeah. come down on her family. For example, they own a football team. And so some agency, a partisan player within the agency, finds they're in violation of an environmental regulation and shuts down the football team, which is devastating. They're in the beginning of the season. They can't play football. So the novel explores what does football have to do with freedom of the press? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, See? So it, it goes deeper into uh, how government can sabotage political enemies when government gets too powerful and there's an abuse yeah. of power. Talk a little bit about inspiration for this book because mm. people listening clearly will draw mm. some parallels between <laughs> sort of what we see playing out. Yeah. Regardless yeah. of your politics, you see this from, from both points of view, right? So what was the inspiration for this? Well, uh, there are several journalists that I studied their books. I read their books. Uh, Cheryl Atkinson, mm -hmm. who has been, uh, a, a, I think her motto is fearless reporting, you know. And uh, she's an independent journalist who left independent. one of the major networks. Yes, right? she did because she was just in, she was investigating a, uh, uh, I think it was Benghazi or uh, uh, the, the, Right, Benghazi. The guns, the guns. The, remember the guns going yes. into Mexico? And she was investigating that, and the people in her uh, company didn't want certain truth, certain facts to come out. And she was actually, she left that. She left that company, and so she does this fearless recording. So she was an inspiration for me that getting uh, opportunistically getting ahead in your company was not as important as seeking the truth. And uh, also Laura Logan, mm -hmm. and her motto is, has no agenda. She's another nonpartisan person, and she's lived through some horrific uh, abuse on the battlefields, foreign battlefields. Right. And she, her motto is, I may have been a victim that day that she was raped on the battlefield. She said, but I'm not a victim anymore. You know, so she's a wonderful uh, woman, inspirational figure. Yeah. And so her reporting also was an inspiration for me. Yeah. I so, wanted to tell this story because it's so important. If we lose freedom of the press, uh, there is no one to investigate everything for us. We as independent people, we can't go out and investigate every issue that comes up. So we really depend on the integrity of the press to do this for us. So we're seeing a lot sort of a, a rise in independent journalism, if you will. Cheryl mm -hmm. Atkinson is a perfect example. Jessica Yellen is another. Mm -hmm. You have a number of examples of journalists who have left major networks, who are starting their own businesses, their own mm -hmm. um, yes. media companies, if you will. Talk about your thoughts around how we should think about journalistic standards, whether mm -hmm. it's an independent entity or whether it's a major network. 
Well, journalism is about seeking truth. And there's also an editorial element to journalism. Every newspaper forever has had an editorial page. So that's okay. But the editorial should be based on facts that they can present to you on a, a good rational ground, on persuasive reasoning, based on facts, you know, events and, and issues that they can give you as proof. But when you say anonymous sources, and then you say, well, I didn't lie. I didn't say that he was a bad guy. I just said that someone else said he was a bad guy. And they pass this off as journalism. Right. It becomes that they create and mold the truth into what they want it to be, which is no longer the truth. And this is a very dangerous trend because this is really the essence of Soviet disinformation. What they do, they take like a kernel of truth and they twist it. And we're seeing this happening by journalists within our own country. It's very troubling. Uh, for example, in my story, Laura Tanninger, my heroine, mm -hmm. she has a drink with a senator and she's investigating election fraud. The senator is in the president's party. He can't speak out, but he tells her, don't give up your investigation. Everything depends on it. And Laura says, what depends on it? And he says, the country. And he grabs her for a moment, her arms, just to tell her, don't give up what you're doing. And someone clips a picture of that. And they say she's having an affair with him. Oh, He's wow. a man with five children, married. And she, they say she's having an affair. All she did was have a drink with him. So you see, they take this little kernel of truth that they have, that they had, were sitting together, and they explode it into something that has nothing at all to do with the truth. And I think that's dangerous. That is so reminiscent of Soviet propaganda. Right. It's frightening. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about Lara as a role model and mm -hmm. a heroine. Mm -hmm. Talk about what you hope folks will take from her example. She doesn't cave to the mob and the mob really comes down on her. That is such an important lesson for all of us in every profession and young and old that we don't cave to a mob that bullies us. You know, so it, the character assassination against her comes out and is spread by media friends of the president who vie themselves to get positions in the administration. There's a lot of interplay between the press administrations in the media and administration uh, positions in, in the uh, so in the administration. Mm -hmm. So she has that going against her. And then she has the weight of her family coming down on her saying, you've got to give up this investigation. They want to be more pragmatic and expedient. So it's her battle against them. What's more important to be expedient and please the people in power today? And then in the long run, we're, we, we are subservient to them. Is this a good idea? And so it's her crusade really to keep her idealism and to not cave to the mob. And I hope that might be an inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. So you also talk a bit or another thread in the book is that surrounds her sister who writes an, uh, an, uh, an opinion editorial in mm -hmm. defense of Laura and publishes mm -hmm. it in a campus newspaper. Mm -hmm. Talk about what happens and how that parallels what we're seeing on college campuses. 
yes, and this was a trend when I was outlining the book several years ago. We could see that uh, the citadel for truth and intellectual expression, colleges are in becoming more and more intolerant of views that a, a small number, but a very vocal number of people and, you know, the leaders of them, uh, you know, are, are really have a political agenda. And a lot of the kids who get involved maybe don't know what they're doing. But we see that Kate, uh, Laura's younger sister, who's a college student, uh, someone writes a, uh, an article panning her sister. Her sister's an elitist. Her sister's a racist. Her sister wants to stop free uh, elections, new systems for elections, and she uh, just wants to get clickbait. She wants to get the president and further her own uh, clicks and prestige. And so her sister, Kate, answers the editorial. And uh, she feels the full force of the mob that comes down. It's started by uh, a, a small group that actually is funded by the administration. You know, if you dig down deep, a lot of these groups, this is the foundation to further student life or something like that. And they really get out the vote for the president and they're funded by him. So they start this and the dean is caught between this small group of 400, they grow, they are 500 people and they shut down the school and he doesn't have the, uh, he, he doesn't have the courage to stop them. And the Kate stands up for herself and she says, well, 10,000 other students are here and they're not protesting. Why are you caving to this small group? And they want Kate to rescind what she said and apologize and Kate won't do it. And so it's her story. And what is the dean going to do? Is he going to side with the mob or is he going to side with this honor student? Yeah. So it's standing up to bullies and the confidence yeah. that it takes for someone like Kate, who's a young woman in college, yeah. to actually stand up for what she believes in, which is also a very important lesson. It is, and she's the ally that Laura has in the family. And the other people in the family just want to do business. They don't really want to be involved with politics and they want to appease the political class as much as they can so they can still do business. But that's the, the, the book tries to show business people that's not a good method. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not good. <laughs> Yeah. Because you'll lose in the end. Yeah. It's a very compelling story. And I don't want you to give any more away because I want folks <laughs> to, to, buy, to buy your book and experience it. But I'd love for you to talk about, I know this is your fourth book and all of your books use fiction to portray mm -hmm. and to dramatize ideas and ideals. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what your original inspiration was mm -hmm. for writing these, these books. Well, you know, storytelling is so compelling, and it's been compelling through the ages in teaching us, enlightening us about ideas, about moral principles, about historical events. And storytelling has a power that nonfiction doesn't have to put you right there and make you experience an event and uh, ideas and moral principles in action. For example, if you take Sherman's March on Atlanta, you know, during the Civil War, you could read a textbook about that and it would be very informative. 
or you could see or read the scene in Gone with the Wind, where right. Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler are escaping Atlanta as Sherman is marching in, and they're in a teetering wagon with a half-dead horse. Explosions are all over. Atlanta is an inferno, and the Confederate Army is in full retreat coming at them, barefoot, moaning, wounded, and the ammunition depot is about to explode. And you, the reader, you're experiencing this as if you were right there. So that's the power that fiction holds to grip us emotionally as well as it enlightens us. And if you look at it, Laura, you know, the Bible is all storytelling. Yeah. It, it imparts moral principles and moral ideals through the art of storytelling. And these stories have come on through the ages. It's not a treatise on morality. Right. <laughs> so uh, I was always fascinated. I read Gone with the Wind when I was about 13, uh-huh. and I was absolutely fascinated. I was carried in to all of the scenes. And uh, so there were great examples of fiction that taught ideas. I was interested in ideas also mm-hmm. and majored in that in uh, school. And I have a degree in philosophy and masters. And so I wanted to combine my interest in fiction with my love of ideas. And we have to mention Ayn Rand in right. this context because I read her work in college. And I was absolutely fascinated with how she pr- projects the ideas of individualism and freedom and the productive individual with a creative mind that's free and that that leads to human hap- that leads to personal happiness as well as the achievement of humankind and uh, she projected those ideas through of course atlas shrugged and other of her novels but through uh, fascinating characters and mystery stories mm-hmm. so i was influenced with that and uh, I just developed a love for fiction writing. Yeah. So let's talk about your career journey has been <laughs> a, a slightly unorthodox, I would say, Definitely. or maybe completely normal as the, as the case may be. We've <laughs> talked to an awful lot of people who've made these very significant career pivots, but you did not start out as a writer, as in terms mm-hmm. of your profession, you were a pharmaceutical chemist, is that right? Yes. <laughs> Walk me through that choice and how you got from there to where you are now. Well, I worked as a chemist, but that was too technical for me. I loved the reason, the rationality, the, the uh, dedication to facts, really. I love that of the sciences, but I didn't enjoy uh, the subject matter. I wanted something more people-oriented. So I went to graduate school and majored in philosophy, but there were no jobs in philosophy at the time I was there. So I ended up becoming a management consultant, human resources, human relations, and I was writing video scripts for a client. It was a restaurant uh, magazine, national magazine, and I was writing video scripts and producing video programs for training restaurant employees. And finally, I, I was so interested in writing the scripts that my client finally said to me, Jen, they were getting more and more plot-oriented. And he said, Jen, I can't have romance in this this video about restaurant sanitation. You know, so, so uh, I told a friend that story, and the friend said, why don't you try writing fiction? And so I meandered from 
chemistry to philosophy to uh, management consulting. And then I found fiction and I did try it. That seemed really hard. It seemed like I was in Hoboken and I wanted to get to Shangri-La. You know, how do you ever write a novel? And so it was very daunting. But when I did it, I realized that I did finally find my passion and this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. So anybody out there who's still looking for your passion, it's never too late to find it. Did you find that you needed additional training in order to make this pivot? Mm -hmm. And how, how soon after you realized you wanted to pursue fiction writing, did you quit your, quit your full-time job and really make this pivot official as opposed to writing as a side hustle or doing it in your spare time? Sort of talk us through sort of what, what yeah. you did. My first two novels I did write while I had a full-time job. And then I was able to save enough money to, you know, be a writer full time. But I would just wake up at five in the morning and not even have, uh, just have coffee, but not even shower or anything. Just go right to the book and write for several hours before I start my day uninterrupted. And so that technique worked for me. Different people have different techniques. Some people may work better late at night, but during those just couple of uninterrupted hours in the morning, I could accomplish more than I could during the day when I'm interrupted. So I found that that technique worked for me. And I like to learn by doing. The publishing I went to school for, I joined a national organization of independent publishers and learned how to be a publisher. I had tried to get my novels agents, an agent, but it, it's so hard to do. And I was not successful at getting an agent or a major publisher. So I said, I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. But Amazon opened the door for many of us writers, the 98% that can't get a publisher, to pursue our American dream. They made it possible for us to have a direct contact with our customers mm -hmm. so that we could sell our books all over the world directly to a customer, whereas we don't have to go through a major publisher. And so that door opened up. And so Kindle came along and eBooks. And I sold thousands of copies of Kindle eBooks in the early days of Kindle when there were only maybe 1 million <laughs> books on Kindle. And all these avenues began to sprout up. Yeah. It became a new industry of how you can advertise and sell Kindle books and all the online uh, avenue. So that's what really saved me, the idea yeah. that Amazon came along. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I want to step back, take a step back in, in your story as you were telling me. You were turned down by several traditional mm. publishers back, you know, in the early days. How did you stay focused on the goal and not let that um, rejection deter you from what you were trying to accomplish? It was very discouraging. Uh, but one thing I did was I, I finished the book first before I tried to broach the agent so it couldn't affect the writing of my book. You know, when agents said to me about my first book, don't get all the politics out of it, just make it a love story. Or, uh, you know, they gave me advice that was jarringly wrong for what I wanted to do. I wanted to combine ideas with the story and they just wanted to take the ideas out. And uh, so fortunately, I wrote the story first. I think you're more vulnerable if you haven't finished your creative project and you get a lot of negative in input. So I believe it's best to finish it first. It makes you, it helps you to deal with the rejection. 
Yeah, that's great advice. That's such great advice. Yeah. And it and it can also re- rejection can have a real chilling impact on your yeah. overall creativity, mm-hmm. right? And your yeah, I I joined this group that was very helpful there, the Independent Book uh, Publishers uh, Association (IBPA) they call themselves, mm-hmm. but they there I met a group of thousands, several thousand feisty independent publishers who were just making their way doing cooperative marketing uh, in Publishers Weekly and other places. And they made their way without the big publishers. And so finding that kind of a group was very helpful. You've been incredibly yeah. successful in this space. How, how do people find out about your books? I think there's sort of a, a point mm-hmm. of view that if you don't go the traditional publishing route, how will people mm-hmm. find your books? How do you sell them? Can you actually make a living mm-hmm. as an independent author? Talk about what your experience has been like. Well, I have not been able to make a whole lot of money doing this, but I don't care. It's my passion. You know, I love it. Yeah, it's hard when all the, you don't get a review in Publishers Weekly. You don't get a review in the New York Times uh, and you don't get in the bookstores. You know, it's hard, but all the bookstores have my book. You just have to go in and order it and they'll Mm -hmm. order it for you. yeah, it's it's hard. I wish I had that answer to how to be a, a writer struggle. Yeah, you know, writer struggle financially. But more and more people are uh, finding me, and I I'm going to be starting a foundation to advance liberty through the arts. And I'm hoping that the I wrote a screenplay for one of my novels, but couldn't sell it. And that novel actually had been endorsed by Nobel laureate Milton Friedman, wow. by Steve Forbes, by the syndicated columnist Walter Williams, and other very prestigious people. Uh, and I still couldn't get a deal to get a screenplay. But I thought to myself, community theater is in every every city in america every town in america it's nonprofit. they work on shoestring budgets and there is a medium where you can't do action adventure and spider-man and that kind of thing it really is a medium for ideas to express ideas there's so much dialogue dialogue is the overpowering element of theater so i thought this is a great way to introduce high school theaters and communities to ideas through drama that really projects important ideas. And so I wrote two stage plays for two of my novels. I wrote a stage play. And I also hope to incorporate some classical stage plays, which also deal with liberty. Yeah. So this is your latest act. In addition to writing these fiction novels, you're also writing these screenplays. And talk Mm -hmm. about how you're going about getting the plays produced. Well, this I have funding for a foundation to advance liberty through the arts and we uh, have been incorporated and we are uh, in we have an application that we are filling out for the uh, 501c3 nonprofit status mm-hmm. and so i have enough to get started and we want to do essay contests for uh, high schools with plays with important plays plays like william tell and uh, maybe Cato, A Tragedy, which was George Washington's favorite play. It was about how uh, senators in ancient Rome uh, objected and fought the tyranny of Julius Caesar. And uh, so we, we hope to introduce that stuff to a high school and a community theater audience. And I hope to start in my own hometown where it's a very receptive, it's a very intellectual atmosphere here. And I think there's a lot of people that would be receptive to it. 
Yeah. And, uh, and the budget would be much less than trying to produce a feature film. So, sure. so that's my next uh, endeavor. That's so <laughs> exciting. That's incredibly exciting. So Jim, you know, we've talked a little bit about your career pivots and, you know, you are a perfect example of someone who is always learning. You're very driven mm -hmm. clearly by your passion, but talk a little bit about how your diversity of career experiences mm. have informed your work? Well, I think the combination of business and philosophy and writing, I think that's all important in giving, uh, you know, sort of an in-depth, out-of-the-box way of approaching a novel. I think that the ideas are important. I think if you have a good plot, you can express the ideas. You know, so some people say you have an extra grind, but you have an extra grind only if you express ideas they don't like, but they don't mind if you have an extra grind to express ideas they like. <laughs> so I would say that uh, the, the interest in ideas gives an intellectual element to the novels. They can be read just as murder mysteries and thrillers, but if you want to delve into what it's all about and what the characters reflect as far as different ideas they hold, are they expedient? Are they uh, compromising the truth? Do they want power over you? Do they care about truth? And so that kind of character analysis uh, and the deeper themes are there. So I'd say my experience in business and also in uh, philosophy and the academics have uh, given the novels more depth. So for the person listening who may mm -hmm. also be an aspiring mm -hmm. novelist, how about some advice for that person? I know you've got some somewhat unorthodox approaches uh. <laughs> as it relates to your process. So talk a little bit about advice that you have for others or, or, or what works for you. This was unorthodox on my part, but it was very helpful for me. I just like to learn by doing, by reading myself. You know, there was once an, a painter, I remember uh, it, it, when I lived in New York, and they said, who were your teachers? He was a Spanish painter. And he said, my teachers are Velazquez, El Greco, and Goya. You know, so he said his teachers are the famous painters. Mm. So I found that my teachers were the people who wrote novels and films that I really, really enjoyed. And I would analyze them. And it, it's not any subject matter that I would <laughs> like. Like, for example, Silence of the Lambs, Thomas <laughs> Harris, one of the great suspense uh, writers yeah. and I learned how he can incorporate two different uh, stories going on at the same time there's things going on with one character and then there's things going on with the bad guy and the good character doesn't know what the bad guy is plotting and I use that technique in just the truth and people like Mary Higgins Clark who wrote mysteries and I, I learned how to end chapters with a zinger that makes you have to read on to the next chapter she's very good at that and so so I just took these uh, writers that I liked Ira Levin A Kiss Before Dying mm -hmm. is one of the most compelling uh, suspenseful novels I've ever read and so I just studied how he how he did his techniques and so I try to learn the art that way because there's a lot of information that's given that doesn't apply to your novel mm -hmm. like for example there's some information that you have to have dialogue immediately 
in your novel. Well, look at the clan of the cave bear. She's alone and there's no dialogue because there's nobody to talk to. A little girl left alone and abandoned. So that cannot be a rule that you follow for everything. You know, or in um, fil film writing, they say you can't have voiceover narration. That's not right. But look at a film like A Christmas Story is total all voiceover narration or The Martian because he's alone in Mars. He has to talk to himself. Yeah. There has to be voiceover narration. And so a lot of the rules they give you are not good for you. And it stifles your creative process if you try to follow them. So I'd say just read and watch and the things you really like, identify what it is, the techniques that you like. For yourself, how do you decide whether a rule is worth, worth being broken? Mm -hmm. One of these sort of standards that's been set. How do you know? Well, the story and plot have to drive everything. And the plot has to be driven by the theme. You, you can't have a, a, a person in the story that doesn't contribute to the theme. So sometimes we see stories today, I don't want to mention the name of some TV series, but they have three different themes going on and they never relate. They never connect. Whereas in a good writing, I think everything has to connect. So your theme has to be your you know, your guide. If my theme is the dangers that journalism is losing the truth, every character has to reflect that theme. So I make decisions about do I need a character who uh, wants to compromise truth because they just want to focus on business or they want to compromise truth because they want to get ahead in their career and their uh, media types. And so I put my characters in to, to suit the theme. So I think integration is everything. And violating a rule, uh, yeah, I'd say there are only basic rules you should go by, you know, theme, plot, characterization, style, and not, and not clutter yourself with too many. So your story would violate the rule if your story yeah. requires it. How about advice on embracing your creative process? Any, anything mm. that you do from the standpoint mm. of sparking your own creativity, um, mm. you know, sort of getting yourself going and getting yourself in the mood to write, what do you do? You have to find things that inspire you. You know, everyone has to find things. I love opera. And what I love about opera is classical opera. It's so passionate and they're not afraid to be passionate and to express their passions in a very outward way. And I find this very emotionally uh, just uh, unleashing unleashing emotion for me and they fight for their values to their death so their characters there that are really very strong and value oriented so when i go to an opera i usually feel inspired even though it might have a grim ending like tosca right. you know where <laughs> the <grim>. heroine <laughs> the heroine just kills the villain and she ends up leaping off a parapet but pursuing her values to the end and she lives for art. She has a beautiful aria there. So I, I, I watch that and I say, I live for art. I'm, I'm Tosca. <laughs> <laughs> so, so great. So as you look back and you think about your body of work so far, mm -hmm. what impact do you hope to have had on others? 
Well, I hope uh, that I've introduced important ideas and issues that we all should be thinking about now and introduce them in an uh, entertaining way, in a way that can get into everyone's household, whereas not everyone is involved with politics and not everyone is reading white papers from uh, an institute or a think tank, and we're not keeping up, whereas entertainment is an art is going into every household you know, certainly films or movies or TV or community theater, uh, a lot of novel readers. So I'm hoping that I can reach people uh, to get them thinking about important issues that we all should be having a stirring conversation about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what else have we not talked about? A very important topic going forward is going to be healthcare. <laughs> and one of my novels, my first one, Noble Vision, which won, uh, it won six book awards, five, I'm sorry, won five book awards. My other one won six, but it, it's uh, award-winning and it was a Kindle bestseller. And uh, that was endorsed by Milton Friedman and C. Forbes, Walter Williams and others. You know, that book is really important. It's about the uh, dangers of a doctor not being able to practice medicine by his own mind, his own judgment, his own conscience, and the dangers of a beautiful woman, in this case, a patient, who is unable to make her own healthcare decisions without an agency overruling her. And so this is going to be a very important issue going forward, and healthcare affects all of us. So uh, I hope that that book, you know, there's this trend now that if your book is three months old, they take it off the shelf. Right. But this book is just coming into its own and being important. So yeah, it's terrific. Well, you, you are an inspiration. I have loved this conversation. I feel very inspired. I know our listeners <laughs> will as well. So I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much, Laura. It was such an honor to be here. Thank you. I was delighted. To learn more about my guest, Jen LaGreca, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 120. There you'll find links to Jen's website as well as her terrific book. And also friends, I could use your help. If you enjoyed today's episode or really any of our episodes, please consider rating She Said, She Said podcast on iTunes. Your positive feedback helps us move up in the ratings and also helps us find more listeners like you. And another favor while I'm asking, please share us with others who you think would enjoy and find these conversations valuable. There isn't anything quite like this, the breadth and scope and particular topics that we tackle. I'm really proud of this mix. And I know if you're listening, you already know that, but I'd be so grateful if you could help me continue to spread the word. As always, I'm also open and I really welcome your feedback. You can contact me directly via the website contact link, or you can direct message me on Instagram. Until next time, take care and thanks so much for listening.